from McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. In this episode of The Venture, we share a conversation with Oi Chu, CEO of Adix, a full-service capital markets platform based in Singapore. The fintech startup uses blockchain and smart contract technology to provide access to a range of securities previously unavailable to mass affluent investors. And in less than three years, ADEX's innovative approach has managed to attract funding from some high-profile regional financial institutions. Oyi sat down to discuss ADEX's mission to democratize investing, create a performance-based culture, and recent efforts to expand their customer base to financial enterprises as well. At the close of the interview, McKinsey's Anatosh Banerjee weighs in. So Oyi, over the years we've had you know, many founders and CEOs share their personal stories on how they started their businesses, and it always starts with a problem. Maybe share how your career evolved and how it shaped the problem you wanted to solve with addicts. I spent time reflecting on why addicts was actually such an interesting proposition and leaving a traditional well-set-up investment bank to join a startup was uh, quite fascinating, even for myself. I spent most of my 20-something years in investment banking. And most of that was around helping companies acquire or do M&A or capital raise. And in Singapore, for the last 20 years, capital raising was a big thing for the capital markets. It was driven by the REIT. So, you know, real estate was very active. And then at UBS, what I saw was actually the evolution of how investing was being done at a ultra high net worth level and a family office level. And I could observe the different types of products and it was shifting towards private markets. It was largely because the private markets had developed rapidly over the last decade. And it was developed mostly for large capital sources like sovereign wealth funds and institutional pension funds. But it started to capture the interest of ultra high net worth uh, investors as well as the family offices because they have uh, deeper pockets, they have a longer term horizon. And you saw the way that the markets moved. If, If you look at today, the capital allocation has become over time 80% public markets and 20% alternatives. But this was not really happening for the mass affluent. So we would do transactions that we would bring private companies to the private bank and we would say to ourselves, hey, you know, we we are sophisticated investors, right? We're, We're investment bankers. Why don't we get a piece of this? And in reality, if you think about why this was the case, we were not availed these alternative assets because the ticket sizes were too large, one. And two, uh, you didn't have the capability of exiting a private equity position as easily as a public market position. And so risk within a large bank would generally say this is deemed unsuitable for the average, even if it's a mass affluent, sophisticated investor. And so when Adex came to me to talk about a chief commercial officer role, they had not gotten the license yet. By the way, I'm a complete technology noob. And so blockchain was very far away from my terminology. But when I saw what the technology itself could do, we were really solving a business problem. We were solving a need in the market where uh, the rich have a very well-developed tool set 
to enhance their portfolio and optimize it. And this was not yet uh, available to the mass affluent. And so it was that fairness, inclusivity of investing that drew me to this and the fact that technology now exists to solve it, blockchain or otherwise. So I took on the role and I realized that actually a lot of my colleagues here had felt the same thing and we were driven by that same motivation. We are professionals, we're like consultants or bankers and we all see that unfairness right now. We want that in our investing toolkit. And so that's the simplest problem that Addicts is trying to solve, democratizing alternative asset investing for mass affluent. And why do we build a platform to do that? You, you don't really need sophisticated platforms to fractionalize, right? That you can fractionalize on a spreadsheet. But our view is fractionalizing, which is creating the size appropriate to the average investor. So for example, the minimum ticket size for a hedge fund in a private bank for a single investor is a million dollars. That makes no sense for someone with a 5 million net worth. But it makes sense for a 5 million net worth investor to have some allocation to hedge funds. And the only way to do that is to break that down into $20,000 or $50,000 ticket sizes so that the 5 million net worth investor can actually build a portfolio around that. But that's one part of the problem. Second part of the problem is when you need to monetize that hedge fund or PE fund, you need a marketplace for that. Or you need a market, sort of organized market for that. And and that's where uh, Addict Solution solves for. I like what you said about, it sounds like this mission is to create inclusivity and, and transparency to to private markets. And I noticed this too as as well in, in Asia is that, you know, high net worth, ultra high net worth, mass affluent segments, they typically will just transact over coffees and trusted relationships. And it's very much a, a private marketplace. And getting access to that deal flow or those opportunities, like you said, sounds like the first problem that you're solving on how you create that inclusivity. And now with the platform, you have a way to manage that in a transparent way on an exchange without going into complex terminology around blockchain and smart contracts. But you know the, the typical question that will come up from a developer is like, why can't we just do this with client server and, and a database for the platform? How do smart contracts create the efficiencies that you need in a marketplace like this? Andrew, I'm tech agnostic, right? I suspect that blockchain presented one of the most efficient solutions, which is why you see a lot of that tokenization discussion happen within the financial services debate, right, at the moment. And blockchain, why we use blockchain is because the ledger itself is very powerful. And what is even more powerful is that the ledger itself is immutable. You know, the information flow is all captured in a single platform. When you trade it, when there's asset servicing, that all can be done uh, within the platform. What smart contracts does on top of that particular blockchain is to execute transactions at the asset servicing level that makes it very efficient. So today, within a bank or a traditional financial services company, a lot of that is being done by systems that were designed 20 or 30 years ago. Or even longer. Some banks are still using like mainframe systems to settle transactions. What's happened is because of the immutability of the chain and the ability for smart contracts to automate post-asset servicing, the 
operations become very lean and efficient and you're not relying on reconciliations across systems to make it work. So what we had to do was to take a interesting concept that was built by the cryptocurrency world and repurpose that for traditional financial services. And we took that and we said, look, blockchain is very powerful from a technological perspective. How do we make it MAS compliant? And that's why we were very fortunate to go into the MAS sandbox. And we put on uh, compliance layers, like, for example, our chain is private permissioned because, you know, we had to build the cybersecurity piece we had to build uh, around the KYC and M- AML requirements of MAS, which means that we have to do the diligence on individuals by ourselves, right? And allow them into the chain to execute transactions. We've come out with a traditional securities license, which is uh, dealing in securities, custody, and a recognized market operator. And I guess just for the audience, MAS is the Monetary Authority of of Singapore. And so you had to go through a few agreements with them to make it what you said is private permission. So just for the audience, what that means is you still go through the compliance checks around AML and KYC, et cetera, to to allow entities to to transact on, on ADEX. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. And when ADEX was launched and you're serving this purpose around creating inclusivity and efficiencies through the platform. Was there a moment where you felt that you really had traction where this term around product market fit for startups is, is often an elusive one? Where did, when did you feel like you had, when you were really onto something and had predictable growth? Yeah, I don't know about predictable growth, but when we started, we were born into COVID, right? So we got our license in 2020. And we were all excited when everything planned and we had all these roadshows that we're going to do. And then all the lockdowns started happening. And it forced us to digitize ourselves very quickly, right? How do we operate, you know, work from home? How do we, because we're such a new team, right? So we had to really intensify the interaction on Zoom. And it was exhausting because you're trying to solve problems, you're trying to launch products, you're trying to make new relationships with issuers and investors. And so we learned a lot in those days. We uh, digitized quite rapidly, even more than what we set out to do. And in the first so few deals, it was we weren't sure whether this was going to happen. And we were grateful for partners who took those first leaps with us. And when we did one deal, we thought, okay, we proved the technology, right? Because it was a it was a fund manager who started a small fund who had his own investors. And so it was a sort of relatively easy package to execute. We said, oh, okay, this works, right? We managed to get investors onboarded. We managed to get the fund onboarded. We managed to cross the trades. And then the second deal came. We said, oh, okay, this is a interesting. It was a hedge fund. And we said, oh, this... This is even better because its name was quite well known in the market. And again, investors were very excited about it because they don't have the opportunity to buy a world-class hedge fund at $50,000 ticket sizes. That's when we went, okay, we kind of got this. And we're very fortunate because we had very good partners. And so we started bringing on names that were more blue chip in Singapore. For example, the Tomasic, within the Tomasic stable, we had Maple Tree, which is very well known for the real estate product. Uh, we brought on Sea Town, which was actually very well known for their private credit and private equity product. But they had never 
needed third-party capital and because Tamasek was funding them. And they saw an opportunity to bring in uh, third-party capital and they worked with us for individuals who were smaller ticket sizes but were very big supporters of Seatown. So it seems like the issuers, like you said, the maple trees of the world, these blue chip names started coming in. And it sounds like, was that sort of when things kind of turned over? As you were getting more blue chip names on the issuing side, that started attracting more of the investors on that side of the exchange? Yes, I think it was a combination of both. I think uh, investors started to see that we could bring on interesting products. We could bring on interesting investment opportunities. And then issuers saw that we could do that and we can do that reliably, consistently. And they may not see us as a very big ticket size, but what we allowed them to do was aggregate a lot of smaller investors into that investment. The amount of work is kind of the same. Our process looks very professional and you know very efficient. And so we've kind of built that reputation over time as to helping issuers digitize their investor sort of following. So to the investor, you get access to interesting opportunities, investments, and to the issuers, they are getting efficiencies, it sounds like, in pooling together a larger number of smaller investors. Even within that distribution. So, for example, uh, one of our deals had a couple of private banks launching the deal at the same time as ourselves. And we observed that there were very little overlap between the customers that were distributed within the private bank and the customers that, or the investors that we were targeting. Because again, we were targeting the, I would say the 2 million to the 20 million net worth. And this particular space has been relatively difficult to, to get into by the big private banks, because again, it's about the ticket sizes, right? The, the private banks don't have that uh, infrastructure to help them ticket sizes down to 20,000. And so they won't serve very well the 2 million to the 20 million net worth uh, individuals. So what we then realized was the initial sort of aha moment for product market fit was, wow, okay, we see this bunch of investors and we didn't have any overlap. And what we saw with time was the same investors, uh, let's say a subgroup of them, who had gotten very comfortable with our platform. And what they were doing was they were building their own private market portfolio through our platform. So for example, they would have 20,000 of the, let's say, real estate fund. They would have 50,000 of a hedge fund. And then they would do like a series of investing across different uh, product types because they don't get that anywhere else. And so that was really sort of that moment where we said, okay, we have something. It was also when digitization became a big buzzword and less tokenization, but more digitization. What does digitization do is actually open up opportunities. So I don't even think about disruption in that sense. We completely opened up a new market uh, where you know there was no solution that existed before. So creating that transparency and those, I guess, those lower thresholds to enter is, is exciting. So you hit product market fit, you're raising more money, and then it sounds like, from what I've read in your, you know, in your last round, you're you're really using this last round to to scale. And scaling for you sounds like you're also shifting into the the B two B two C 
market as well. And this is a common decision that many, you know, B2C players need to make is that if you do the B2C part so well, sometimes you'll get entities who also want access to the platform. Maybe share a little bit about what that journey has been like and how you made the decision to step into B2B2C. Yeah, uh, that was a evolution of all the conversations we've had, right? When we started, we said, oh, this is a market that's untapped, right? So we, we went for that market. We saw the proposition for that. And the few things that happened that made us really think very hard about the uh, what we call the enterprise or the B2B2C side, one was we knew that we had a solution that even though we were a young solution, presented a, a better infrastructure for wealth managers. That we knew because when we came out, everyone's like, wow, this is great. So every securities house that we spoke to or bank that we talked to uh, generally sort of see what they do, we do and they go, wow, this is cool. And two things happened. One is they became our shareholders. So we saw banks, securities houses, one, a front row view about what digitization and blockchain would do, either to complement the business or potentially disrupt the business. And we see investors like UOP, Hamilton Lane, uh, who worked with us and were very excited about the way we were approaching this problem. Uh, we have Kronstri and Tatra and Tokai and Hanwha, so regional banks, securities houses. And a lot of them wanted to sit on our cap table, invest in us, but they actually wanted to bring us into either their ecosystem or to work with them to go into their respective countries to develop that blockchain thinking, private market thinking for them. So I think that was really sort of the first signal. The second signal we realized was how powerful blockchain was within the financial services debate. And at first, in 2020, we couldn't really, there was no this debate about tokenization, right? I think people were just sort of trying to stay alive. And in 2020, 2021, the financial services all started to develop their own innovation teams. And so there was a lot more openness about discussing uh, partnerships, relationships, infrastructure, how do we support that? And we saw that through, you know, actively speaking at conferences, we saw the shape of the speakers at conferences change as well. So we knew that something was, was happening, uh, you know, with the big banks. The third is we ourselves came to that realization that when we were doing the direct to consumer activities, right, that there was a need for education because we saw a first wave of users that were very educated, uh, understood private markets. They just didn't have access. People like us, right? Bankers, consultants, lawyers. The second wave that we saw were investors who weren't as clued into the private markets and who are trying to understand that. So we knew that education became a, a very important consideration. We knew we couldn't do it alone. And when we started talking to securities houses and, and banks, they also wanted a platform to help them educate their sales force on private markets and different types of products and how it would position against their clients' portfolios. So with these three things, we then, oh, okay, you know, we should think about the enterprise because we, we think at the end of the day, democratization doesn't matter whether we're doing it ourselves or doing it with partners and like banks. The idea is to get as much of that invested as, as possible, right? That, that's the main mission. Yeah, well, well, instead of just having one B2C 
marketplace. Now it sounds like you're moving towards a direction where you have multiple nodes or multiple exchanges through your your enterprise customers. And how is that? Because the enterprise customer is a, a different animal, right? Obviously, where now you're building tools or you're building infrastructure, I would imagine, to scale and to meet the needs and often the the urgent demands of, of an enterprise customer. Yeah. And we sort of thought very hard. We talked to consultants and bankers and all of that all the time, right? Just to get ideas and think about what to do. What would be the framework that this could happen? Uh, what kind of inputs we needed? Because we couldn't obviously get uh, we were designing something from scratch, right? As uh, I mentioned, the solution doesn't really exist for wealth managers. And so we needed a partner that could help us think through some of the design elements. And it needed a partner uh, that could help us think through not just the tech piece, but also the inner workings of a bank, which, as you know, is very, very complex. It's about operations, it's about risk, it's about legal, it's about compliance. And then it's about the frontline uh, bankers who have to deliver their P&L. And generally speaking, the guys who are delivering the P&L would get very excited about our product, but we knew we had to design the right fit for institutions across the different stakeholders. Yeah, like you said, the frontline, like wealth managers must have been excited to present or offer these unique investment opportunities to customers, but without ticking all the boxes for the enterprise around compliance and security, et cetera, that it would have just been a much longer journey uh, and a riskier journey. So basically, this path you're going down with enterprise, what, what are you calling it? And, you know, is this now the full thrust of Addicts? So we've... Uh, re- branded the enterprise product as Addix Advantage. Addix Advantage has got a few solutions to that. It could be as simple as a single corporate account. It could be as complex as a enterprise uh, sub-account structure. But at the end of the day, the idea is to get the wealth managers involved in you know either thinking about the product or being educated about the product. And they then in turn position that within their own client portfolios. So it is driven to be a relationship manager toolkit and the execution and settlement piece behind that is also operated uh, by uh, our exchange. And so that takes away a lot of the pain points for uh, securities houses, private banks who say, well, I cannot take on a complex private market portfolio because I don't have the backend to do it. So it then reduces the excuse uh, for them not to take it on. And the reason why that is so, if you think about private markets, as you mentioned, it, it could be as simple as a couple of guys in a lobby sort of pitching to each other. But there are also different types of funds, and these funds have different structures and different servicing needs and different you know, capital calls or distributions or redemptions, a very wide range of operational capability that a bank needs to have. And if we can take that pain point away, that that provides a great base level for the wealth managers to then start selling or, or start positioning or advising clients that, hey, you know, you need some hedge fund in your portfolio. Or, hey, you need some growth or tech or impact because clients want impact. And I think one of the best expressions for impact is actually in the private equity space, right? Or in the, in the growth space. So, edX Advantage, we think it's a very powerful proposition to us, 
But on the other side, what we're also seeing is that we learn a lot from the direct-to-consumer as well. So a lot of the innovation that we take from interacting directly with individual consumers actually provide a framework for us to continually improve the Advantage product. And it could be things like uh, the reaction to the markets. How do we look at positioning private markets in a volatile public market setting? And so things like capital preservation and yield become very important. Or it could be uh, we have a data set, whether it's big enough or not. I mean, it remains, we're growing that all the time, right? So our data is likely to get better and better in terms of demographics, uh, user behavior, How do we then bring some of these learnings across to advantage? And I think I want to sort of be quite clear that I don't see ourselves competing with our enterprise clients because our enterprise clients are private banks where they advise and they finance clients. We don't advise clients. And so the private banker plus the private banker generally has a full view of a client's net worth across the public and the private space. So frankly, they're better placed to advise a client as to how much to do and what and you know how, how would that work across a client's wealth portfolio in totality. No, I, I think it's a, an amazing way to enter enterprise when you're not presenting a PowerPoint, but rather you have a, a live exchange with facts and real customers to show that you understand the nuances and you understand all the compliance issues, security issues, et cetera, that you need on the on the back end to give them the confidence to to bring it to their customers, like you said, for the additional advisory that they add on top. So that, that must be powerful. I would imagine enterprises are probably a bit tired of just getting barraged by fin- new fintech players that have theoretical PowerPoints. You're coming to them with a real business. Yeah. So that being said, I mean, it can't just be all, it sounds very positive, but I'm sure there are things obviously in this startup life, especially as a CEO, where things can obviously be stressful. You know, I want to shift a little bit to more what the journey has been like for you individually. What keeps you up at night? Yes, the startup life is, is definitely much more interesting. And there's so many things that sort of come curveballed your way. Well, first of all, currently what keeps me up at night is the market. Right. The volatility in the markets is causing shifts in investor behavior quite rapidly. And we've had to uh, quickly learn how to pivot the pipeline of issuances just to address that. So that's one. Two is sort of that, you know, that, that sudden shift is not like when you build a pipeline and trying to launch deals, it actually does take some months to develop, curate, originate, you know, get it approved and, and launch. So these things, as a startup, you don't you don't know what you don't know, and then it happens. You think, oh, okay, I'm going to build a scenario for this. The second thing that keeps me up at night is sort of how do we manage that talent? Because we're building enterprise, it's a whole new skill set. How do we sort of ensure that we create the right team and skill set to grow this business? And it's very different from a direct to consumer approach, right? A, a person who is good at marketing or, or sort of a, a consumer-focused approach is not likely to be the same person to be selling a platform to a financial services company, a bank or a security sales because that selling process is very different. It's a very different game, yeah. The enterprise is very much longer sales cycle and just different skill set, yeah. 
And you're you're out of like you said this the second part that's keeping you up around around people. You're up to about a hundred hundred twenty people now. Is, is that right? We're about one hundred and twenty people. Yes, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we st- when I started sort of two and a half years ago, we were around I think fifty something, and now we're hundred and twenty, and and it's great. It shows that sort of we've on a we've built teams to be at a certain sort of critical mass for stability, but it is creating a different uh, paradigm. Right, I think like around a hundred people is sort of that that formative stage in the growth of a business where, you know, you make that move from under knowing everyone's first name and what they did over the weekend and how their families are doing to something a bit more structured where you have to be probably a bit more intentional on the culture and the the leadership principles that you kind of set in place. Anything you want to share with the audience on how you're thinking about this word culture and any principles you're living by right now to build that up? Yeah, a number of my early employees, those that even were hired even before me, they used to reminisce about sitting in a room and there are like 15, 20 of them. And, you know, it'd, it'd be very easy, right? You kind of yelled at each other if you need to solve a problem. You know, you sort of turn around and say, oh, what are you doing with this? So that what I'm trying to do is sort of preserve that, although at 120, it's getting increasingly difficult because what you want is the speed of the solution, the alignment of what you want to do quickly, and then the execution is done in a very tight manner. Because as a startup, you can't afford to build in bureaucracy and you can't afford to build in a decision-making that becomes a little bit too long-dated and then you kind of miss either trends or you're too slow to pick things up. So the evolution from 20 to 50 to 100 and 120 is to think about what are the soft infrastructure you need and the hard infrastructure you need to enforce culture, right? Whatever we define. And where we are today is we continue, and I think the right word for that for us now is the performance culture. And and performance culture, what does that mean to everyone? My personal reflection of that is, uh, my analogy is, you know, it's like F1, right? And you're in the pit and then you sort of see the car zoom in and sort of like 10 people leap onto the car, change the tires, refuel, and then boom, off he goes. That's what I mean. The team needs to understand exactly what their role is and execute that with such precision. And so they have that framework of knowing exactly what they're doing and what speed they have to do it for uh, them to be successful. But how you then execute that, obviously, is going to be longer term one. There's no right answer for that. Uh, It does start with being clear or at least have a definition of that in my head and my senior management team's head about what that means. And then developing the HR uh, infrastructure, the talent, the recruitment from the recruitment to talent retention across those different aspects that reflects what we want out of this. Yeah, and I like the the performance culture with F one. I mean, I was uh, I was just reading an article on how the basically the manager of Team Mercedes, I think his name is Toto. I, I'm forgetting his last name, but they were all just in Singapore, right? And he was describing how they have this culture where making mistakes is okay. I mean, everyone knows their role. Making mistakes is okay. And it prevents, you know, the blame game, things getting 
toxic people kind of festering about mistakes. And what's interesting about this analogy to F1 is, I guess, at 120 people, everyone, in, in order to engender that kind of culture of performance, everyone must know what their role is. And you need to trust the person to your left and right to make those quick decisions and to prioritize so that you're not crossing over each other and you're getting the job done. Is that kind of where you're going with this? Is like everyone kind of knows their role and there's this high amount of trust of the people to your left and right? A cadence of doing something so together, either it could be decision making, it could be, you know, you're designing something new, that training and, and practice is, is important. And I think that's where the latitude for mistakes can be made. I think now with a bigger team, it's a little bit harder. But in the earlier days, we used to say, well, we need to make mistakes or we need to have a hypothesis, design around it, and then see if it works or not work. And I deliberately use the word hypothesis so that people won't feel like they've made a decision and it's wrong and they failed. So performance to me, it's about, okay, how do you allow that training, that practice at a certain setting for perhaps different ideas or slightly sort of less infrastructurally crucial things, but sort of make sure that that is done with a consistency of approach and that there's an acknowledgement that, you know, okay, it's wrong and we do it some other way. Or for example, if we plan and we're always off plan, why, why is that off plan? And we kind of dig into it and make sure that the next time we do it, maybe we give it more time or we give it more resource so that we get closer and closer to what we call performance. And the end goal is to make sure that at, at a certain point, if we say we want to do this, we do it with a lot more precision. Again, no, nothing is perfect, right? Nobody's going to predict things like the markets. But when we say we're going to do this, we do this, uh, we do what we say we're going to do with a high amount of accuracy on time and completion. And it could be technologically related, it could be product issuance related, it could be, you know, a variety of these things. And I think the closer we get to that is where I think performance is that definition. Yeah. So performance in some sense equals an agreed upon process that's followed in a, an amount of time, but with the flexibility to ask the questions, to have a hypothesis, then quickly test and learn. So, you know, I'm looking forward to see how Addict's Advantage goes and, and how you grow the B2C part of the business as well. I love this approach to enterprise where you really have, a, you know, a lot of more street cred when you have a, a growing, thriving business to bring to them as an example. So, yeah, would love to check in again, maybe sometime in next year and, and see how things are growing. Maybe you're way beyond 120 people. Yeah, Andrew, I'm looking, really looking forward to that. From the day that we started, I look back every year and I say, wow. Wow, you know, we've evolved so much. We've developed so much, and we can't. And uh, you know, I've been in this job for two and a half years. It's not that long, but I definitely by next year would hopefully have very good news. Amazing! Thanks, Oi, for joining, and look forward to talking again. Great, thanks, Andrew. Now comes a segment where we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. Hey, Anatosh, thanks for joining the show. Thank you, Andrew. In this conversation with OE, we talked a lot about the value proposition of, of Adex and the problems that we're solving here. And I just kind of wanted to start with you by sharing how we see the world in Web3 and some of the technical layers. So there is at the foundation blockchain and then the smart contracts or more or less the programs that you can automate through smart contracts as a second layer. 
And then the third layer are the the digital assets and tokens that can basically represent anything from NFTs to the metaverse to tokens themselves. And just to help the audience, can you share a little bit more about how blockchain that layer is making the difference for ADEX itself? Obviously, ADEX is running on Ethereum as their blockchain. In addition to providing the blockchain or the distributed ledger, what it also provides ADEX is the ability to run smart contracts on the blockchain. But in addition to that, ADEX is also able to offer a proposition where the securities that it offers, either for issuance or trading or custody, can be issued in a natively digital format. So they can be issued as a native digital asset or a token. So taken together, all three can open up quite an amazing array of applications. If you compare what ADEX would offer its customers and what uh, traditional financial services intermediary, they're able to run that with only a handful of client service operations personnel because the chain is fully digitized from issuance through to custody. And the smart contracts are able to automate a lot of the day-to-day mundane operational processes that a traditional intermediary would have normally run. And this is where the efficiency comes into play that OE was mentioning. And she mentioned that the immutability of the blockchain is critical in that flow. Like This is a term that gets thrown around a lot. What does immutability mean to you when it comes to blockchain? Yes, I think in the context of blockchain, so immutability comes about from the way that the ledger is written. And because of the way that the ledger is written and the amount of consensus that goes into it before any transaction gets validated, it becomes harder to change the blockchain or change the ledger. It's not uh, technically immutable, but the amount of effort required to tamper or change the blockchain-based ledger is order of magnitude higher than the amount of effort required to edit or change a normal ledger. Tell us a little bit more on how much of a deal smart contracts are for this value proposition for addicts itself. I think it's worthwhile to have you comment a bit on smart contracts not being a new thing, but something that's gaining a lot more traction or perhaps product market fit, at least for this part of the financial market. Yeah, that's a good point, Andrew. And when you translate smart contract-based processes in a regulated environment, uh, there are other considerations that come into play. In particular, in certain jurisdictions like Singapore, but equally other jurisdictions, outsourcing guidelines become uh, quite relevant to consider. So when uh, you're actually having a smart contract-based system uh, settle these transactions, what part of the transaction are you outsourcing to this provider versus running yourself and what kind of governance are you running on top of it? These become quite critical as well. So the advantage is very obvious, but it's important to then realize what is the smart contract providing as a service to the users of the service. And in certain cases, in the case of Addix, for example, it's it's an operational efficiency point that Addix is able to bring in, which is internal to Addix. And the service that it's providing is more access, where because it's running so efficiently, it's able to provide access at $10,000 per uh, investment size when a particular investment bank, which is running a much more manual process, can probably only offer it at a much higher ticket size. I think that's a great segue. I mean, the fractionalization of the asset to a smaller ticket item, in this case for private markets, for issuers that 
may not typically seek to raise money through smaller investors. Now they have a unified way to do that. You want to comment a little bit about where we're seeing or how you're kind of viewing the world around the tokenization of assets? When you think about the Web3 technology stack that you talked about earlier, tokenization of real-world assets was probably one of the first applications that got early product market fit. And we are yet waiting for a big sort of moment where tokenization takes off. And we feel the markers are there, both on the investor side and the issuer side, for tokenization to scale up in the near term. And the reason for that is probably a few, but maybe we can cover a few on the investor and the issuer side. On the investor side, investors have portfolios that are going through a fair amount of volatility, and they probably want to manage their asset liability uh, in a much closer manner. And for that, they want to have a shorter dated, a smaller ticket size investments that they want to have access to. And a tokenization platform can issue, let's say, a $200 million facility in 10 or $20 million bite-sized chunks, where a traditional investment bank may not be able to issue that kind of assets at that smaller size. So a tokenization platform is able to create these commercial paper programs that match the investor's asset liability gap in a dynamic manner, especially given the volatility that's ongoing in the markets now. Yeah, it seems like the last two, three years, there have been a lot of investments around the infrastructure, around these layers, around blockchain, around smart contracts, around digital assets and tokenization. I think we'll start seeing more, yes, in real estate, perhaps in entertainment, other types of asset classes will emerge. It's a bit of a learning curve right now, but we're like a few years off where or maybe even sooner, where some of these breakthrough use cases, uh, in this case around tokenizing new asset classes, can make the difference. Yeah. Do you feel like we're close? You're saying we're like we're like a few months off, a few years off. What's your sense? I think it, it differs by asset class, obviously. And that's why I brought about sort of real estate, precious metals, where probably the markers are here right now. But the big opportunity, Andrew, to your point about new asset classes, is also in the sustainability area. And the carbon markets where immutability of blockchain to be able to ensure that the carbon underlying markers have not been tampered with. And sitting on top of that, you're able to issue, let's say, sort of carbon credits. These can then become uh, tradable on the venues that are coming about. And this could be a huge trend in the second half of this decade. Yeah, I think that one of the big takeaways, for me at least, for the audience, is that when the topic of tokenization or crypto comes about, is to not let the noise we hear about that world drown out the the value that can be created from the other layers around blockchain around smart contracts those two layers alone are creating uh massive efficiencies to take out intermediaries in the sort of the traditional web 2.0 world yeah and i think you're right i mean digital assets and tokens that third layer of the web 3 technology layers in that layer currently the bulk of the market cap sits in crypto assets But when we look ahead and we think about the opportunity presented by tokenization of real-world assets, but equally a lot of the utility tokens or NFTs that could enable things like the creative economy or things around corporate intellectual property, metaverse-oriented other experiences to take off, and we look ahead, uh, we expect a lot of these other kinds of tokens to be a bigger proportion of the market cap for the overall digital assets than what it is, has been uh, so far. Well, thanks for joining the show. I definitely have to uh, keep our close eye on this and excited to see some of those new asset classes emerge and some of the other types of uh, tokens uh, gain, gain traction. No, this is super exciting, Andrew. Thanks for having us. 
You have been listening to The Venture. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.